Hello and welcome to another episode of Unauthorized Disclosure. I'm one of your hosts, Rania Kalik, and I'm joined by the show's other host, Kevin Gastola. Hey, Kevin. Hey. So we're really excited to welcome back to the show for like the fifth time, maybe, I don't know, Max Blumenthal. He is the founder and senior editor of the Gray Zone website, and he is the author of the recent book, The Management of Savagery, How America's National Security State Fueled the Rise of Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and Donald Trump. So it's great to have you back on, Max. Thanks for coming on. Good to be back on. I guess every time it gets more grim. <laughs> yeah. So the reason that the initial reason we wanted to have you on this time around, obviously, we're going to get to your book. But the more uh, important issue is the fact that like about a week and a half ago, you were arrested on a politically charged uh, accusation by like the pro the right wing, like pro regime change crazy Venezuela uh, crowd uh, and you spent like a, a like a couple days in jail and now you're all tied up in legal stuff so it's insane what happened it was like a political attack on journalism but why don't you start by explaining to our listeners uh, what took place well I was yeah I was arrested uh, sort of out of the blue um, like two Fridays ago can't even remember the date uh, I woke up to pounding on the door at 9 a.m. There was a team of police officers outside. Uh, the commander was, the sergeant was threatening to break my door down if I didn't let them in. I realized there were police officers on the side of my house. as though I was like a flight risk and I was going to jump out the window and like run away. And then, you know, I mean, I don't know what they were thinking. I realized later when I looked at my warrant that I'd been listed as armed and dangerous, um, which is a designation that appears on three percent of arrest warrants and that's usually for people who have a history of homicide or who've been on the run from the law that kind of thing mm -hmm. um and this all related to a completely false bogus mendacious uh, allegation by a member of the venezuelan opposition uh relating to an incident described in court documents that occurred five months ago and, you know, between the um, incident described in the court documents and which was basically uh, um, around the Venezuelan embassy where this um, I don't know if you did any shows on it, but your listeners will probably be familiar with the fact that a number of peace activists and journalists um, took up positions inside the Venezuelan embassy between April and May. Uh, to defend international law and defend the embassy from being taken over by the right-wing Venezuelan opposition backed and paid by the U.S. government to replace the U.N.-recognized elected government of Venezuela. And so they were defending their consular facilities from an illegal takeover attempt. And when they took up positions inside the embassy, they were surrounded by this mob of violent right-wing Venezuelan exiles uh, who are completely connected to the State Department and this whole U.S. operation, which was overseen by Juan Guaido's fake ambassador, Carlos Vecchio, in Washington. And so I was one of the reporters on the outside who was covering, documenting their violence, their racism. I mean, these were the most... It, it was like... Um, I, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say it was... A, it, it had shades of Charlottesville where a mob of really racist, homophobic, fascistic people were just rampaging through my city 24-7, uh, just making uh, it just ins 
just an insane display yeah, against, they were like uh, these peace activists. And yeah, yeah, I mean, you were there. You documented They're like some rabid. Of it. They were like a rabid crowd. Some guy who worked at the World Bank or something went off on you on video. And I mean, what did he say to you? Yeah, he was like, "You fucking whore, you stupid bitch." And I was just like, I didn't, I didn't even do or say anything. I was just like standing near people he didn't like. Like, I don't even think he'd ever seen me there. Um, I was just like a journalist hanging out watching and he was just, he was screaming like these insanely misogynistic, hateful things at me. Like, I don't even think I've ever experienced that before actually. And totally, and then the only time like, like totally shameless about it. Like, and the only time he kind of stopped was when I said I was a journalist. And then he didn't say, he didn't apologize. He just walked away and then suddenly I was bombarded by these like women who were like, oh shit, oh my God, please don't write that down. Don't tell anyone you saw it like that, that just happened. Because they know that that's how these people are like, that's what these people are like. They're like insane right-wingers. They might as, it might, it was like being at a Trump rally. Yeah, exactly. And if you were, so if you were there um, on the kind of anti-regime change side, anti-coup side, uh, chances are you were verbally assaulted, especially if you were, you know, if you were black or if you looked queer, if you, often if you were a woman, um, you would be verbally assaulted or threatened with rape. Uh, you might even have been physically assaulted. Many people were physically assaulted by these, by this crowd. And a lot of it was documented. We were doing a really good job of documenting it. And beyond that, at the gray zone, we were doing a really good job of just shredding the whole narrative of the coup and exposing a lot of the deceptions. Um, and we, we even got some mainstream credit for it. And we've continued to do so over these past few months. So, um, at a certain point, the Venezuelan opposition uh, decided that you know their PR wasn't they, they, they needed better Hasbara, as the Israelis would say, and they put on this phony press conference and came out and alleged that you know they'd been attacked. Um, that was back in May. Um, I since then have uh, you know entered the I've, I've taken several foreign trips for reporting. I've entered the country, gone in and out. Um, you know, every the police would have had no problem executing a warrant on me in these past five months. But apparently there was no warrant for me for a long time. And uh, someone who is familiar with the court documents told me that a judge even rejected uh, an attempt to put out a warrant for my arrest. The charge was a simple assault, which is, you know, a it's not assault and battery. It's a misdemeanor, and it's the kind of charge that almost always gets thrown out. And when I was in prison, uh, many of the guys I was in with were charged with simple assault, and they were let. They just were allowed to go home uh, with no paper. It's called. It's like the, it's called the golden ticket. And so, like the marshals come in and say, "You got the golden ticket," and they just let you out. You don't even have to see the judge. You just go home. And these guys had misdemeanors. I have the same charge, but it looks like the government wants to take this sham to trial. Um, so I have to lawyer up and prepare for all that. Um, but basically, I'm, I'm completely innocent. Uh, nothing that I was accused of, I've done nothing that I've accused of. Um, and the facts will speak for themselves in court if the government does indeed want to take this sham to trial. Um, but what it does show, and what I think is happening here, is is an act of political persecution that's part of a wider campaign um, to use the legal system against me 
and the gray zone. And this does happen to journalists. I mean, it's happening increasingly in the West, but it happens to journalists in countries where all the you know free press NGOs and the human rights groups actually pay attention, but they haven't really said much about this instance. It's very clear that an element that the gray zone and I have been reporting on and doing a lot of um, you know, critical reporting on throughout this whole year um, has fabricated an allegation against me um, and is using the government as a tool of revenge. And uh, I mean, that just couldn't be more clear, but there's more to know about their collusion with the Department of Justice and with the State Department. Um, it was the Secret Service that was you know, outside the embassy for most of the, t the time that the siege of the embassy took place. And the Secret Service operates under the auspices of the State Department. And the Secret Service was completely, uh, it, 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 they were almost like the Praetorian Guard of the right-wing Venezuelan opposition. They were basically- uh, I remember watching the, that. Yeah. I remember watching, well, though, because I remember watching that the times that I was there, um, when these people got crazy and were, like, assaulting everybody, they would just, like, let it happen. Yeah. And then the only time the Secret Service would get involved is to, like, prevent food from going inside or prevent, like, anybody from stopping other people from assaulting them. Well, um, the, the Secret Service absolutely would not um, stop. They, they, did, they did nothing if you were on our side, on the anti-coup side, and you complained about being assaulted. But they obviously were um, just on a leash. They were like, just like the leash was held by the right-wing Venezuelan opposition. And whenever there was a complaint by them, they would act on it. Um, and mm -hmm. there was one instance when some activist inside the embassy was on the other side of a door. Um, and the Secret Service were, were, were um, taking a break and they were on the other side, uh, on the outside. And the commander was briefing the new group of officers that were coming in. Um, I guess they were changing shifts. And the commander was overheard saying, okay, across the street, um, those are the, the Venezuelans. And they're basically, they're the U.S. government. They're on our side. Uh, on the other side of the street, that's Code Pink and the you know protesters. And they're paid by the Russian government. <laughs> that's how they understood the dynamic of the protests. Basically, we are to protect these assets, these critical assets Holy who are shit. Venezuelan government, uh, you know, Juan Guaido's, you know, administration, which the U.S. government is paying, and there are guys, and the other people are the Russians. They're Russian prostitutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, code code pink. All those old ladies in code pink are just the Russians. Um, it, but you know, it wasn't Secret Service who showed up at my door. It's D.C. police, um, and so. You know, they have a lot to answer for, too, um, especially the way they executed the arrest. I mean, I could have been called and told that I had a warrant and I could have gone in and turned myself in because I have nothing to fear. I didn't. I'm completely innocent. And I could have shown up at my arraignment. But instead, you know, I had to let a team of officers in my house, um, you know, they th this is a situation where. They have to watch everything you do. I'd just woken up. So, you know, I put on like pajamas and then they told me that, you know, I'm not allowed to change my clothes or put on another article of clothing or go to the bathroom without them being in my immediate vicinity, like up in my grill, in my face. 
to make sure that I don't, because I was listed as 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 um, armed and dangerous, so that I I don't you know pull out a weapon or something. It was insane, and so I had this huge sergeant following me around my house uh, while I put on a coat, went to the bathroom. Um, they um, that's great. The armed and dangerous part is crazy because that literally would have given them license to kill you had you mm-hmm. done anything well exactly and make a single one of those officers feel uncomfortable and and you know at a certain point i was you know physically accosted and i kind of negotiated my way out of what was like a hold that an officer put me in um because he said i was taking too long and i'm like i'm about to go to jail for an undetermined period let me put on a coat or like a, a sweater or something i'm just, just wearing pajamas um so basically it, it was a very uh you know, it was really tense for a few minutes while they were arresting me. And it's disorienting because you don't expect to have five police officers in your living room at 9 a.m. on Friday morning. Um, And I really, you know, they threw me in a paddy wagon. um, And, you know, you have your first feeling of kind of uh, physical isolation and that you've lost complete control over your freedom and your autonomy. And then I started thinking, you know, I just got swatted. I got basically swatted. Like somebody made up an allegation against me and a team of armed cops came to my house very aggressively threatening to break my door down and anything could have happened there if I hadn't mm-hmm. been compliant. And that's that that's absolutely I mean that's part of the scandal here is that no. this opposition movement <sighs> is able to just pull that on someone and that the police would follow through in such an aggressive and extreme way. There was no effort made to even investigate the allegation. Just It just shows that anyone can say anything about you, and then you could, you could potentially have armed, aggressive police officers in your living room as a result. Well, only if you're, like, it depends which side you're on, of course, because, like, the fact, this is, like, what's insane about this is if it had happened in another country... Uh, like if it had happened in Venezuela, for example, like Human Rights Watch would be making so much noise about it. Mm-hmm. And, and they did. They did for that guy, Corey Weddle, who is uh, some random uh, Western American journalist in Venezuela who was detained for 12 hours. Um, you know, mainstream media and the human rights groups raised hell for him. And uh, <laughs> you saw what the freedom. You saw the freedom yeah. of the press foundation uh, first. Just kind of dismissed my case, and then they got ratioed on Twitter. And then they called me up, and you know, they apologized, but the apology was kind of never going to be made public. And then they issued a statement, which kind of suggests that they're watching the case now, but they weren't. It wasn't an affirmative statement, like yes, this is an attack on press freedom. This is an attack on a journalist. This is political persecution. Um, you know, it was like pulling teeth to even get a statement. Um, so yeah, you're right. I have to change my citizenship to Russian. I have to get Russian citizenship and denounce Vladimir Putin before I can get these groups, uh, to say anything (laughs) in support of me. (laughs) I think that organization is actually with like the Knight First Amendment Institute or something like that. It's the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker. And yeah, they said you weren't in the course of reporting, and, and I know you can't speak to specifics, but I just immediately reacted, well, why else would you be at the embassy? I mean, it's not like you were just there on a jaunt to just tool around and, 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 and raise hell outside 
the embassy. I mean, you're there because you're a journalist and you're interested in what's happening in this showdown. And I think that you've spoken a little well, bit about this. Sorry, let, let, let me just interrupt quickly. Um, you know, I, uh, I've said before that the facts will speak for themselves if the government wants to take this to trial. Uh, either way, the facts are going to speak for themselves. Uh, but, you know, I'm like uh, both of you. I'm an advocacy journalist. Everybody knows what my opinions are, what my biases are. But my work rises and falls on whether it's factual or not. And so many people who are participating in the these attacks on me and this attempt to sort of discredit and denigrate me, uh, none of them uh, really dispute the my the factual basis of my reporting. They seek to discredit me on a kind of personal basis um, or or to caricature me. They do it to both of you, and so uh, I, I make no uh, attempt to present myself as an objective reporter mm -hmm. around the embassy. I was a factual reporter, but I was embedded with the peace activists around the embassy. And I was embedded with, uh, you know, I, I consider myself a part of the action, but I'm using journalism. Um, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm, I was there to help the other journalists as well. Um, so those facts will bear themselves out in the end, along with my complete and total innocence. And can I ask about, because uh, in the context, you're not, you're not the only case of political repression related to the, what happened at the embassy. There are these other embassy protectors that have these political cases that are ongoing. Um, and of course, yeah. they were raided um, in violation of the v Vienna Convention, that the, the, these forces were actually sent into this diplomatic building. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about this? And I know that they've shown solidarity with you. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah, I think it's really important. You know, a lot of people who asked how they can support me should know that it's really important to support the four embassy protectors who are facing a year in prison and massive fines simply for refusing to leave in respect for international law and specifically the Vienna, the Vienna Convention's uh, protections of, of consular facilities. Um, the U.S. government had no right to take this embassy. There's simply no legal convention or resolution that allows it. And they've created this really dangerous pretext, kind of law of the jungle, where this could happen to any country um, that's deemed an adversary. So the Venezuelan government could reciprocate and take the U.S. embassy, turn it into a community center or something like that, but it hasn't done the so. The U.S. would lose, the U.S. would absolutely lose its shit. Yeah, and the U.S. would, would go crazy and the mainstream media would follow and say, this is, you know, thuggery, you know, Maduro's mm -hmm. authoritarianism, but it would be just simply reciprocating um, what the U.S. had done. So, like Iran shooting down a drone over Iranian <laughs> territory, for example. Uh, this is Iranian aggression. But yeah. the point is that these four, uh, these four brave people, David Paul, Adrian Pine, Kevin Zeese, and Margaret Flowers, remained in the embassy till the very end. And the day before they were raided in this kind of Waco-style military raid, um, Jesse Jackson had shown up at the embassy. And it's really important also to consider that Jesse Jackson did this while he's battling Parkinson's. Um, and he showed up with the members of the Black Alliance for Peace. And the D.C. police had taken over at that point. Um, 
And they had been very aggressive with everyone trying to get food in. But when they saw Jesse Jackson come down with ba uh, some bags of food and attempt to bring it uh, into the embassy with embassy protectors hoisting it up with ropes, the D.C. police stood aside. They thought, you know, we can't tackle Jesse Jackson. Yeah, just, PR that's disaster. Just, yeah. That's just too far. And I think some of the officers had some respect for him that just mm. uh, there's a there's a sort of a personal respect. So he tried to hoist food up with the um, Black Alliance for Peace activists and some of the Venezuelan right wingers attempted to kind of attack them to prevent the food physically from going up. They failed. Um, and that really uh, upset. I think that upset the State Department. I, I'd, I'd heard actually from some sources that while Pompeo didn't really care about what was going on there, Elliot Abrams took a real saw it as a real personal affront. Um, so the following day they were raided. They were like, this is getting too high profile. These people won't go away. We've tried everything. They'd cut off their electricity. They then cut off the water and that failed to work. Which was also like an illegal move too. Completely illegal because the embassy had paid its electricity bills. And so here you have the State Department actually instructing a city utility to turn off the power on a building uh, in order to advance U.S. foreign policy. It shows you how even municipal utilities, municipal D.C. city institutions can fall under the control of the U.S. government uh, in order to enact a foreign policy initiative. It was it was absurd. So they were basically imperialized. Pepco got the word. You you come down here and shut off the electricity because we're the real we're really in charge. They could have said no and they could have taken it to court, but they were just, you know, like all of the corporations that have abided by um, U.S. sanctions on Venezuela. It's like when when you know, like Adobe. <laughs> Adobe, the ma major, major League Baseball, they just banned all players from participating in the Venezuelan Winter Leagues and killed wow. the Venezuelan. They destroyed Venezuelan baseball, um, <sighs> including all the Venezuelan players. They're not allowed to play in their home country now if they want to play here. So, you know, when, when Mr. Charlie and Uncle Sam come knocking on your door, you just kind of fall into line. Nobody resists. And so that was the case with the local municipal um, utilities. So they cut off the the uh, electricity, but nothing would work. They couldn't get them out. So they hauled the four embassy protectors out and charged them with the most extreme um, charge they could uh, slap them with. And now they face a year in prison. Um, you know, they're, they're doing speaking tours and various events to um, cover their legal defense and raise awareness. But it's really important to know about that case as well. And there are many other people um, who were arrested outside the embassy for, for example, throwing a, tr trying to toss a cucumber in a window. That was Jerry Condon, the president of Veterans for Peace. He was slammed to the ground and bloodied up by Secret Service officers for tossing a cucumber. I think this- A missile. I think what you meant to say is he tossed a missile. <laughs> he was charged with throwing missiles, as was Ariel Gold of Code Pink. Um, but yeah, I'm, this might be the first man beaten for tossing a cucumber in American history. <laughs> I don't or know. any history, like I don't think that's like a thing. So you know, you I, you know, here we're still, they're still continuing with this kind of campaign of intimidation. It's definitely, you know, targeting me because of who I am. The right wing Venezuelans know who I am, and they want me persecuted, um, and they also want to make an example of me. And you know, they want to make an example. 
of anyone who tried to resist this, this just, um, you, you know, insane regime change attempt that actually played out right before our eyes in D.C. And no one expected anyone to resist. I mean, this, this action came out of nowhere. I think it shocked the State Department and it definitely shocked uh, the right wing Venezuelan opposition. And their frustration was just played out in so many violent acts that they committed on camera. Damn, like uh, it's uh, it's I mean, this is definitely part of a broader campaign for sure as well. Like this came from the Venezuelans, obviously the right wing Venezuelans, like using the U.S. authorities uh, to get revenge and also make an example of you. But I mean, uh, the level of attacks overall, like to use the legal system and not just the legal system, but also just like the reputational assault that yeah. like you, me, all of us have had to, you know, all of us have had to endure since Trump became president. I mean, you would have thought Trump being president in a way would have like caused some more friction or like caused some more, um, I don't know, like, like it would have caused people to maybe break away a little bit from like the most insane elements of U.S. foreign policy. But it's like when it comes to foreign policy, it's still just, it's even more insane. It's like everyone still falls in line. And it's, it's just, it's really scary because even, even when you were like the watching you and this like legal case become public against you, you saw all these insane people who obviously hate us all, but like they were like applauding it. They were applauding yeah, you being yeah. arrested. Like that's yeah. really creepy to watch. These yeah, people like want us in solitary confinement or dead. Like, I don't think I don't think that's an exaggeration. Um, I mean, yeah. I would I would say I would say, uh, Rania, you're going too far, but you're you're not. Um, <laughs> and, and it's just very clear. I mean, for, first of all, you know, there's another element online. It's sort of an online element that uh, has formed this kind of regime change echo chamber while posing as leftists or trying to kind of insinuate themselves into the left and manipulate left-wing politics to advance uh, the kind of bipartisan imperialist agenda. And they uh, really um, put a target on our backs in late 2016 when the sort of final regime change propaganda well it wasn't actually the final one but the i, I guess the most um consequential the most consequential and well-conceived uh regime change propaganda construct started falling apart which was all around aleppo mm -hmm. when the extremist uh, armed opposition controlled five districts in eastern aleppo and they were being rooted out um, through a syrian and russian military offensive and, you know, the, everything just started to fall apart with their narrative because we started to see what the armed opposition truly was. And it wasn't just a bunch of heroic uh, rescuers with a Nobel Prize in one hand and, uh, you know, an Oscar in the other. It wasn't just like a child, a seven-year-old child, uh, you know, holding a teddy bear. It was some of the most ferocious Salafi jihadi extremists in the world and they had been defending that agenda for years. And we kind of came out to expose this sham. Um, and I think we helped kind of create space where there hadn't been any on the left um, for other people 
to, to realize that they'd been duped, that they were being lied to. And so we became targets. Um, and the way that they targeted us, as I said, was just through sort of personal denigration and attempting to censor us, to get us banned from platforms. It really culminated with the attempt to prevent my book launch mm -hmm. from taking place, the launch of my book, The Management of Savagery, um, which launched, um, I guess, last, around the same time that the Venezuelan embassy um, protests kicked off. And, uh, you know, what I, what I noticed was that a lot of people who'd appeared in the pages of my book were powerful people connected to the U.S. and U.K. national security state, like the military intelligence apparatus of the U.S. and the U.K., people like James Le Masurier, who had founded the Syrian White Helmets in Turkey uh, with over something like over $80 million from the U.S. and U.K., so and, much money. And That's like a lot of, of money. <laughs> and tons of money from Qatar and tons of support from, you know, the Turkish government of um, the great democratic hero Recep Erdogan. Uh, you know, this group <laughs> that had been embedded with groups ranging from Jabhat al-Nusra to the so-called Free Syrian Army to Ahar al-Sham to even ISIS. Um, this group, this, their founder... Um, or Muaz Mustafa, the guy who brought John McCain on his notorious visit inside uh, rebel-held Syrian territory to meet with uh, the Free Syrian Army, which is now waging this brutal offensive on behalf of the Turkish military in northern Syria. Muaz Mustafa, um, someone who's just like working hand in glove with the State Department to do regime change in Syria. Uh, these characters were actually publicly lobbying politics and prose, this DC bookstore, along with the Syrian American Council, the main Syrian regime change lobbying group in Washington, uh, to prevent me from speaking there. And they actually succeeded in getting the talk suspended and then moved to another location, according to the politics and prose owners, for security reasons. Um, and so you could just see what they were trying to do. It was the same thing that you know a tobacco lobbyist would do to someone who is blowing the whistle on you know Philip Morris adding nicotine secretly to cigarettes. Basically, the same thing that the gun lobby would do to you know people uh, you know lobbying for uh, more background checks. It was basically an organized lobby trying to shut someone down who had exposed them in broad daylight. Um, and I happened to be. A journalist exposing them and everything I do is public and I was working largely with public records but it was such a threat to them that they mobilized in this extreme way to prevent anyone who was hosting me on my book tour from from letting me speak and now you can see that they not only want to silence me they want to deprive me of my freedom on the basis of a false charge and many of these same people who've also participated in other attempts to use the legal system to silence me and shut me down. Um, and, you know, we can, we can uh, talk about that in coming days. Um, they were celebrating me being shackled, for example, by the D.C. police. They were claiming that I was guilty until proven innocent. And we should also mention that these are people who claim to be involved in democracy promotion and celebrating <laughs> pro-democracy movements abroad. But at home, they're the ultimate authoritarians, and they want to not only silence and censor their perceived ideological 
foes and their critics and journalists who expose their scams. They want to imprison them. That's just clear. That's confirmed. There's no debate about that. That's not hyperbolic. No. Yeah. Um, and it, it also reminds me of like, uh, I mean, not too long ago, this feels like forever ago because of everything that's happened since then. But we were in Syria like a month yeah. and a half ago. Yeah. And they like lost it. They lost it. Like all of these people went into overdrive and were having like a collective seizure. Yeah. Um, because we were like in Syria just being like, hey, this is what Syria is like. Um, and their response was just like insane. I mean, they click, they're extremely triggered by, by your work, my work. Like they're, they're, and I don't know. I think some of them are actually extremely emotionally, like, like uh, angry. Then you can't even tell it apart from. I don't know what that noise is, but you're making espresso, I assume. <laughs> oh, you're yeah, you're making, but like, uh, it's but it just it's actually like it's it's a little bit. It, I don't know. There's something about it that is frightening, and I think it is that like intention of like really wanting to do harm to people's livelihoods, to people's lives, <laughs> like. Uh, well, what they, they what they want. You know what they want is, um, do you remember when we were constantly under attack by Zionists in the Israel lobby? Yeah. One thing they would constantly say is go to Gaza, you know. So we can go, kill you. <laughs> no, it's go, it's go to Gaza so you, in their mind, they think that Gaza is like just filled. They think that Gaza is what, you know, Eastern Aleppo was under <laughs> yeah. jihadist control. And they wanted us to basically be kidnapped and beheaded James Foley style. So they basically want um, their demons to slaughter us. Um, it's a very peculiar psychological phenomenon, which reveals that we are their ultimate demon because we look like them and we come from their social and cultural milieu, but we are so ideologically different that they despise us even more then they, you know, then, th for example, the Syrian regime changers, it, it, it seems like they despise us more than Bashar al-Assad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> are you sort of trying to say that because Bashar doesn't have his henchmen arrest you when you go into Syria, that they feel like that confirms something about your ethics? Well, there's, there's that, but what they, would, what they would want most is for his henchmen to kill us. They would like us to die an ironic death that would prove... Uh, that we we were the, these these naive clowns, um, <laughs> the ultimate useful <laughs> idiots. But what they instead, what they what obviously that wasn't going to happen. Um, so what they instead did was contrive this lie that we were constantly surrounded by these hardcore government minders and that we were being taken on a junket, um, and that you know a behind, genocide junket, <laughs> a genocide junket. Yeah, behind our cameras were these like. You know, Alawite thugs who had like, um, you know, d you know, e wearing the ears of their victims and this kind of thing, <laughs> and and that's uh, that's Children's it's just fingers. In, in it's in it, in it in itself, it's actually a very Orientalist fantasy of what Syria is like, um, and it's very different from the experience that I we mean. Had they also there. they also I think they also are were so committed to. Um, to making sure no one actually sees what Syria is like, because like I think even oh, Emacs, yeah, like sure. you hadn't been there before, and it was like for me part of my experience being there this time was actually getting to see like your reaction to being there because I actually haven't been there before with somebody who hasn't been there, and so that was interesting too because like 
Because, like, you're, you saw this, like, saw, you, saw, you saw a part of Syria that almost no one gets to see. And you were like, holy shit, this place is awesome. It's so, his- like, there's so much history. And, like, there's the people are really cool. And it's, like, fun. And it's, like, you're not supposed to, people aren't supposed to see that. Because it makes it, that would make it harder to destroy. Right. So, well, yeah. I mean, the human dimension comes into intimate focus when you're there. And, um, and you also can sense that there is a consensus against regime change among people who disagree about the nature of the government. And, you know, you talk to people who even were participants in the early stages of the protests in 2011 who turned against it. Um, it just, you see the complexities uh, much more clearly. Um, and that is something that this regime change echo chamber uh, doesn't want anyone to see. They especially don't want Western correspondents to see that. And so what, what they are is actually a component of the sanctions on Syria. I don't even want to call it sanctions. It's basically you know, economic terrorism, uh, punishing everyone who lives in Syria simply for being there because their government is a designated enemy. And so this is the kind of cultural component. And it's ironic that some of the people who um, you know, have worked in Palestine solidarity organizations put way more energy into the cultural boycott of Syria post-colonial mm-hmm. Arab state than they do into that against Israel. Um, but you uh, went to Syria, I think, maybe it was the first time you went in 2016 that triggered the first kind of regime change freakout. And you went with a bunch of Western correspondents um, who are like, to me, the worst, some of the worst people on earth, uh, because they went into Damascus and started really enjoying themselves and seeing some of the same things. Well, some, then, of them had, some of them had been there before and they were like, yeah. oh, this is my favorite bar here. Like they would be in the old city. It's my favorite bar could... here. I want ISIS to take it over. <laughs> yeah. Actually, one guy, I even actually said something along those lines of like, this is my, this is one of my favorite bars. I love it. And is like drinking a beer and meanwhile, he's like, but yeah, the government's so bad, even a rural sham would be better. And I'm like, but you're drinking a beer, like, you do, like, how do you not get the disconnect if a rural sham was here? You definitely couldn't drink that beer. And he's like, oh, I wouldn't be here if they were here, but anything's better than this government. It's like, the disconnect is unbelievable. But yeah. that's, it's even more, yeah, it's even more disgusting. It's, wor- um, it's worse than a disconnect. It's just, it's hypocrisy and yeah. opportunism <laughs> at its finest, because they know that if they presented the image of Syria that we did, which is as we saw it, and then defended it against being taken over by, you know, the Wahhabi Contras of the West and the Gulf states, that would be the end of them. I mean, like the perfect, the perfect person is like Ann Barnard. Uh, <laughs> when when I uh, when I uh, published my two part expose on the White Helmets back in uh, like September, 2016. And it was like the first, you know, it really started this escalation of attacks on me and everyone around me who supported um, what I was saying. Uh, Ann Barnard's husband, who's this sort of pro-war think tanker, uh, Mm -hmm. tweeted that, you know, in three years or in two years, we'll find out from some media blog that Max Blumenthal has moved on to another job and his career was destroyed by um, Assadism and support for Russia, something like that. Um, you know, it's been, it's been like three years now 
and I'm still here. I've released. I mean, I have you have you tweeted book. that? You should like you should retweet that. Yeah, I like, keep. Hey. I I just remembered it, but you know, I'm still here. <laughs> I'm still doing journalism, and um, I, I I dropped a book and a documentary, and like no one will remember who this clown is, no matter how many you know pleadings for war on Syria he writes. But it's just you know so ironic that you know Anne Barnard, his wife, went on that jaunt into Damascus with you, got no criticism and for it, enjoyed herself, and then came she back met with, she, she met with Assad, actually. She uh, actually met with Assad and interviewed him. I, you know, I didn't know that, but, you know, she, her journalism has been, I mean, I, I wrote a two-part expose <laughs> on her journalism where she basically relied on a series of, of, of front groups for the State Department and the Qatari monarchy uh, that <laughs> poses human rights organizations uh, to write basically her final pieces on Syria, uh, which were front page features promoted by Hillary Clinton, uh, that were just like, it was basically like a press release for the State Department call that made the case for the prosecution of the Syrian government in um, foreign courts that circumvent, <laughs> that circumvent international law and the International Criminal Court. And then she moved on to be you know, the environmental correspondent for the New York Times it was like her reward for doing her service uh, to the regime change lobby. And then she moves on to a cushy job covering climate change and gets to like, you know, move from interviewing Bashar al-Assad to interviewing Greta Thunberg or whoever. <laughs> you know, and if she had, I mean... if she had diverged from that agenda one bit, there wouldn't have been any, you know, green reporter, you know, get to go to <laughs> Greenland and see the ice melting. And, you know, I will add, like, these people, you know, having spent a little bit of time with them on the genocide junket that I joined them on a few years yeah. ago, um, I will say they are they are completely convinced, like, they're of, of, their, of what they're doing is right. Like, they yeah. really believe... I guess you kind of have to be convinced. Otherwise because they believe America. Otherwise you're a sociopath. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with the culture, you should probably have in your Wikipedia, like in the first lines that you met with Assad, like it's amazing that Anne would be able to get away with that, given the culture. Yeah, like especially since Halsey met with Assad and like nobody lets her forget it. But like, um, the, it's I fine. Think, I mean, you know, I mean, it's, it's fine. fine. Yeah, it's if... fine. She did and she interviewed him and it's fine. But the point is, is like I, I was specifically targeted for attack because I had no institutional backing. Well, these people from the Washington Post and New York Times that were on the same trip as me and most of whom got to meet with the president and interview him uh, were like left untouched. And they actually like a lot of them felt bad for me because of like the way I was being treated. But none of them publicly defended me. Like that's the thing is these public attacks also, you know, there are people in the mainstream and I know some of them who do largely agree with the things that we say, but there's no space for them to have those opinions with the circles that they run in and these like Western media circles at yeah. all. And they I just kind of want to fit them. in. Yeah, they just yeah, like, want to exactly. fit in. They want to fit in. That's it. It's a very conformist culture. It's like a culture. peer pressure. It attracts conformist people who uh, are obsessed with pedigree and credentials, uh, people who are willing to spend $80,000 a year on journalism school just to get those credentials. Um, mm -hmm. It attracts people who care about their own prestige more than any principle or the truth. Uh, people who are completely unfamiliar with the social context of anti-war politics or like the consequential left who've never been around that. Uh, also, they tend to be from kind of elite backgrounds, upper middle mm -hmm. class or above, who have the ability to go to grad school and learn Arabic. Um, 
And they ultimately, because they're from that cultural and economic context in the West, they believe in the West. They're an American exceptionalists. Um, and they are have much more in common with someone like Condoleezza Rice than they do with, you know, a common, uh, you know, a woman who uh, like a regular person, in, a Syria. regular woman who lives in Aleppo in West Aleppo. Yeah. Totally. And, you know, it's interesting, too, because I think that, that you can almost tie this all together between Venezuela, Syria and now even with Lebanon, you know, there's these protests happening in Lebanon and there's a lot of good to them. But then there's also always a fear and it's a good fear to have. And it's something that should always be like something that you're paying attention to whenever there's protests in a country that America wants to screw. Um, but like there's protests happening here and then there's these like right wing Lebanese people and some liberal Lebanese people who some of whom receive money from the U.S. who are calling on the U.S. to uh, extend their sanctions on Hezbollah to also include the Christian uh, party and government that's allied with Hezbollah. Um, and it just reminds me so much of like what you see with Syria and Venezuela is the people who end up getting listened to from these countries are like Western educated, typically Western educated, also elites and calling for the destruction of their own countries. And I find it so sickening. Like Lebanon is, is like literally at the moment in an economic collapse. It's gonna get really bad in this country. And you've got people who live here calling for the US to sanction people in the Lebanese government more. Like, it just, it's like baffling to me, at least with the Venezuelans and Syrians, the people doing that typically live outside. But like here, you've got the people living in it doing it. It's crazy. Well, but these are, are the people they? that I can't mean, listen. Who, who well, there's people. They? So like, I just watched this panel, for example, um, of uh, like one of them was this guy Makram Rabah. He's a he's an AUB professor of history. Yeah. And also, um, he works at this consultancy firm called Quantum, which was heavily involved in the so-called Cedar Revolution of 2005, which could probably be called a color revolution, actually. Um, and so now like, and, and it was a, it was a panel that I watched from like the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which is like a pro-Israel lobby. So you've got people like him, this other guy, um, Lachman Sleem, who's the head of this like group that runs the website Shia Watch, if you've ever heard of it. And the group that runs it, that he has yeah, yeah, yeah. actually partnered with like the new, um, the National Institute for Democracy, is that what it's called, or National, National, Dem Endowment. National Democratic, no, it's part of the National Oh, the National Democratic Institute, yeah. Yeah, did, thank you, NDI. Do they have a website called Jew Watch? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. <laughs> Shia Watch um, is okay, but like, you know, crazy. the U.S. government has a website called it's well, the, I don't know. I, he's partnered with them. They haven't directly funded his group, but the fact that he's partnered with them is an indirect way of funding. Yeah. And it was like, so it was him, this guy. And then the funny enough, the, there was like an economist from uh, the Kateyev <laughs> party, which is like a far right wing Christian party that was a militia that was involved in lots of massacres of Palestinians. Uh, back during the Civil War, although a lot of militias were. But anyway, this guy is a part of the furthest right-wing party you can think of, and it's like it's like America's little bitch in Lebanon. Um, and he was the most reasonable among them. And but these two other guys were just like, like they were saying they you know the protests are an opportunity to call for sanctions or to get the U.S. to sanction um, the rest of the government basically that's in a coalition with Hezbollah. And it just is so sickening to me. 
that you see this and you see it in all these countries, but like to be living here during an economic collapse and be calling for like the further destruction of the economy, um, just to weaken a political, a political adversary of yours. Uh, it's as I just like, you're a psychopath, like you're actually a psychopath to do that. Yeah. Um, and that's like, that's like Moaz Mustafa. Like that's that kind of person who allies with American empire to destroy the country that is like his ancestral home. Uh, that's like these, uh, right-wing Venezuelans who, you know, we encountered outside the embassy. They wanted the U S to bomb their country. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a breaking point for each of these exiled, exile groups, uh, where they represent, um, some faction or element in their society, which has been pushed out by a revolutionary or post-colonial government or a, a movement um, a resistance that expelled it, that, that expelled an occupier. Like, yeah. Right. Well, so you, you know, in Syria, for example, you have, you know, the families that were, uh, landowners and then, you know, the Syrian government comes in and does land reform and they lose a lot of land. This is, you know, an elite element, the same, uh, you know, that you could liken to the white farmers in South Africa or Zimbabwe, uh, formerly Rhodesia. And so they have this breaking point where they say, you know, this is no longer my country. And then you go through two generations, three generations, um, and they're living in the U.S. Um, what relationship do they have to Syria? Uh, absolute, almost none. They can only relate to other fellow exiles, um, including, you know, um, members of the Muslim Brotherhood who have who left Syria after the Battle of Hama in 82, uh, where they attempted to basically take over the country and were massacred. Um, so then they, they build coalitions together. It's the same thing in Venezuela with the wealthy. And so you had these two waves of emigration to the U.S. and Venezuela. Or I, I'd actually say there, yeah, were really two waves. The first wave was, you know, around the election of Hugo Chavez and his defeat of the coup attempt in 2002 and then his nationalization or renationalization of the oil industry the following year where he broke the managerial strike and that whole class of elites and you know technocrats um, they left and they were sort of political exiles who came to the US then you had the economic collapse when oil prices went down around 2014 2015 and then the middle class and the youth there was this just giant brain drain. They were sort of economic exiles. And most of them, you know, they've come to the U.S. and they've formed a new lobby in Florida, um, but also in Northern Virginia that has really su- that has supplemented the pre-existing Miami Cuban lobby, um, what, you know, Fidel Castro called the Miami Mafia. They do function like a mafia. And their coup attempt was really uh, this desperate last-ditch effort that was doomed to fail uh, and they successfully sold the Trump administration on it through John Bolton. And it, it, it basically, you know, with the embassy showed how fragile they were. They couldn't even take this building from U.S. activists. Uh, and they didn't understand how to present themselves to the U.S. public, as you could see by just how racist they were in the middle of a very progressive city, how fascist they were. Um, and so what they've done since then is try to get their hands on Venezuela's most valuable foreign assets like Citgo and steal as much as they can. Uh, USAID is paying the salaries of this kind of Miami clan of 
Carlos Vecchio and all of these, you know, these kind of like sleazy Brooks Brothers mafia characters. Um, they have no hope of going back to Venezuela. The government is secure there. And so they've, they've basically formed, uh, you know, their own, they've, 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 they've broken finally with their country. And it's the experience that so many other right-wing exile groups in the U.S. Um, have had with their home countries. And they come together um, through a kind of global regime change lobby, through these various networks like the Oslo Freedom Foundation, all of these NGOs that work with the National Endowment for Democracy and USAID, and they share tactics with each other, and then they help try to manage and stage color revolutions. And so what we're seeing with Hong Kong represents not just something that's indigenous to Hong Kong, but the sharing of tactics uh, with uh, the Ukrainian regime change operation, uh, with the Nicaraguan regime change operation, which itself built on the Venezuelan Guarimbas. And now what we're seeing in Bolivia, we saw this violent attack on the mayor of a, on a, of, a, of a female mayor who supports Evo Morales. And you look at the people who attack her and the weapons they were using, the costumes, looks identical to what you see, what we saw in Venezuela between 2014 and 2017 and what we, you see in Hong Kong, where like, one thing they do is they, they cut up oil barrels and make shields out of them and then decorate the shields. Um, they have, you know, you look at the, compare their, their gear um, or the gear of those in Hong Kong to people rising up in Chile, where there is no U.S. institutional support. It's so much more advanced. And so the point I'm making is that the U.S. has become home for a lot of uh, kind of favored and specially protected exile groups who are treated 100 times better than immigrants from Mexico or Haiti who tend to be you know, progressive. And they form these lobbies and you know whether we're talking about syria or the people in lebanon the what they're lobbying for is the destruction of home country of their home countries by the u.s military and through u.s economic might uh mm -hmm. and i mean that is just i just don't i mean psychologically i'm just like where's the shame and there is no yeah yeah, and with the case of Lebanon, I'm talking about people who still live here. I guess you could say the same about Hong Kong, too. Like, they still live there. They're not entirely well, exiled. You know, I would, I would make an, a comparison to, I mean, it's, it's a sort of a stretch, but on a psychological level. Do you remember uh, when Trump was elected in 2017, um, the, the, the search among centrist U.S. liberals for To a, go live in Canada? <laughs> no, for, no, well, that was, that was under Bush, but the, the oh. search among centrist U.S. liberals for an, a, an international savior. And they settled on Angela Merkel. They first loved Macron <laughs> until the yellow vest came out. And it's kind of like the same thing as if US liberals realized that Trump, if Trump got reelected three more times, they would start calling on Angela Merkel to do regime change at home, yeah. you know? It's kind of like that. Or they'd all flee to Germany and, you know, <laughs> uh, sip Warsteiner in Berlin and and and, pl and plot the operation. That, that's that's hilarious. Like. That's hilarious. For the rest of the interview, please go to Patreon.com/slash/unauthorizeddisclosure. If you're a patron, you'll be able to access about 40 extra minutes of content from the interview, and we get into Syria, talk about recent developments, President Donald Trump. 
and also a chapter in his book, Management of Savagery, uh, related to Syria. So go to patreon.com slash unauthorized disclosure. But for those of you who aren't patrons, here's a sign off. You know, I just want to thank everyone who listened to this and who's been um, showing me solidarity. Um, I really was encouraged by the amount of solidarity and support that I've gotten, including from people uh, who don't agree with me. Um, so I think people have shown that they, they'll stand up on principle and uh, that they're willing, they're willing to fight. So let's just keep fighting together. Well, I also want to just yeah. quickly propose that there are going to be several organizations and individuals that we can be angry with for not showing you solidarity and other journalists like you, they're going to fail to show them solidarity. But I think we need to focus a lot on the people who do stand up. And I would yeah. just say to those who listen to the show, if you see people who are celebrating and coming to the defense of Max, if you see people who defend Rania, if you see people who defend me or others who are senselessly attacked, you should connect with them. You should make sure that you're you know, donating and supporting and taking care of them as they need their work to circulate and they need to keep doing well in their profession. I mean, the best way to guard against shitty journalism is to elevate not shitty journalism. Yeah. Couldn't say it better. So, uh, so, uh, we've got podcast moderate rebels and, uh, check out the gray zone.com. And of course this is one of the best podcasts out there. So support them as well. (laughs) And on that unauthorized disclosure. (laughs) <laughs> on that note like thank you so much max for coming on and spending time chatting about all this and you know we hope you're we hope everything goes well in court i we are all like pretty uh sure it will go your way um so and hopefully we can have you back on for an update at some point definitely um definitely so thanks again for having me 